Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. In, in week one, we looked at, well, how do you even know what truth is? How do you discern it? And we were able to discern truth. And then the next week, we asked the fundamental question of who am I and where did I come from and the implications of all of that in terms of your value and your direction in life. And then last week, we dealt with the question, how did the world get so messed up? You look at natural disasters, you look at wars, you look at all these different things in our world. How did it get to be that way? And we talked about the fact that we live in a fallen world and that we are fallen people and the world is broken and we are broken. And so today, last week just kind of ended and today we're going to look at the solution to the world's problems, particularly the root cause of the world's problems because there are unlimited approaches to solving the symptoms of the world's issues. And you can see the symptoms all around you and deal with kind of a band-aid approach to surface issues, but we have to get beneath that uh, if we want to make a real difference in the world. You know, if you were to just go around your yard uh, with a pair of scissors and cut the tops off of the weeds, the weed is still very much there. Uh, It grows back and it grows back and it grows back. And you can work on the symptoms of something, but the root is still there. And a lot of the problems in your life, in your family, in your career, a lot of the problems in our nation, in our world, we tend to treat the symptoms, and we just kind of cut the problem off at the top, but the root is still there, and so it keeps growing back and growing back and growing back. In fact, on your outline, I've listed seven popular approaches to dealing with the world's problems, and as I go through these real quickly, you're going to recognize every single one of these, Uh, but the first is the educational approach. And that basically says that all the problems in the world are the result of ignorance. And if we could just get everybody educated, the world would be a better place. Now, uh, we support education. Obviously, we believe in and support education. Uh, In fact, the first school in almost every nation was started by Christianity or Judaism. Uh, They're educational religions. However, we don't believe in salvation by education, because really it's, it's not enough. There are many terrorists and tyrants and criminals and dictators who are highly educated. Uh, that doesn't mean it, it changes your character, conforms your character, so it doesn't get to the root. Another approach is the material approach or the financial approach to the world's problems. Uh, these are people who see everything in the world as and it's economics, as if every problem had an economic solution. And of course, economics matters. It's why the Bible talks about it. We, we preach on money. We, we offer an amazing class, small group class, called Financial Peace University. 
And we're going to offer that this semester, starting in, in mid-September on Sunday afternoons at 2 o'clock. And I'll tell you, I can't recommend it highly enough. It, it brings exactly what it says, peace to your finances. If you've got arguments, struggles, uh, battles, there's just worries about your finances, it will bring peace to that. So it's worth addressing. And of course, Christians believe in helping the poor and eliminating poverty but you can get all of that right and it still doesn't meet your biggest need we don't believe in salvation by compensation meaning if everyone were just wealthier that that would change humanity it wouldn't another popular approach is the political approach to solving the world's problems that basically says uh, change through legislation change through policies through mandates and politics and the truth is, a lot of people genuinely believe that government, not God, is the answer to the human condition. And if you take God out of the picture, basically all you have left is salvation by legislation. The only problem with that is you can't force anybody to change. A law has never changed anybody, anywhere, anytime. It may cause you to conform your behavior for a little while, so we need good law, but it's never conformed to character. It's never changed a belief, a prejudice. You have to deal with something much deeper in the human body than policy. Now, again, with all these, it doesn't mean we ignore them. I mean, we have a, we've been given a great opportunity in our nation to vote our worldview and to, to do what's going to most closely honor Christ. But the root answer, it's not the root answer to the world's problems. If it was all perfect, all right, the world would still be fallen. We'd still be broken. Then we have another, another approach to the world's problems. That's the psychological approach. That is, we just need to help people uh, change the way they feel about themselves, about their past, about the situations in their life. This would be salvation by actualization, as if the whole goal is just to take uh, stress out of life, but you were made for much more than a stress-free life. Then there's the sociological approach to the world's problems uh, that says, let's change the structures of society, and if we do that, everything will be great. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were many social activists that genuinely believe that if you change the structures of society, then things would naturally get better. The 20th century, 20th century, where we saw a Holocaust, two world wars, many genocides, there, there's not salvation by association. People realize there's a deeper issue than just a social structure. Another uh, approach is technology. Uh, to make everyone more productive, more plugged in, more informed, more connected. But there is no salvation by innovation. And as grateful as I am for technological innovation, it's not going to solve the world's root problems. Then there's the biological approach, uh, which is we're just going to focus on the human body. And uh, there's more and more, I mean, people are combining these two of biotech uh, approach and we're going to do more stuff to try and eliminate bad DNA and, and more tests and, and engineering and try to engineer the human body. 
But there's another approach. And, and with each of these things, I just went through very quickly with a broad brush, uh, they have a role, but you can get all these right and it still doesn't meet the biggest need because they don't get to the root problems of the world. They don't deal with human beings directly. And the bottom line is this, you have to change the hearts of people if there's going to be any long-term change in your life, in your family, in your community, in our nation, in our world. The biblical approach, if you're taking notes, write this in, is to change hearts. No law will ever teach people how to love. Only God can do that. You have salvation by transformation. It starts in the hearts. It begins inside of you. The Bible says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The wellspring of life is your heart, your character. It's who you are inside. The heart of the problem, it's the problem of the heart. There's an old story about a father whose uh, son, he and his son were bored on a rainy day. They didn't have any games. They didn't know what to do. Uh, so he found a big uh, picture of a map inside of a magazine, map of the world. He took the map of the world, cut it up into tiny pieces with scissors, mixed it all up, gave it to his son, thought that'll keep him busy for a while. Fifteen minutes later, the son comes back together with a taped together perfectly taped together map of the world, everything in its proper place. The father said, how did you do that? And the son said, there's a picture on the, of a man on the back. And once I got the man put together, the world fit too. It starts in the heart. The fact is only changed hearts can change lives. Only changed heart can change your own life. That's why today we're going to look at what changes the heart. Because we live in a fallen world, a broken planet, human beings have heart issues. We have heart diseases. And I'm not talking about physical heart diseases, uh, which actually I'm studying that too and can tell, tell you a lot about that. But I'm talking about spiritual heart issues, spiritual heart diseases, universal heart issues. You can find them in every culture. Let me give you just five common universal heart issues and then the symptoms that it causes in each human being uh, when when we have these issues in our heart the first one is this it's guilt guilt and the reason it's guilt is because of what we talked about last week because we sin we have transgressions we have iniquity and the symptom is that many people in their life feel worthless all this guilt causes a feeling of worthlessness in their lives. A second common heart disease is this word compulsion. And when I talk about compulsion, uh, it's this. There are things in your life that you know are not good for you, but you do them anyway. You may not call these addictions, but they are. And every one of us has compulsions in our lives that we habitually act in self-defeating ways. We do it all the time. We do things that defeat our relationships. We do things that defeat our health. We do things that defeat our circumstance. And the symptom is many people feel helpless because we are powerless to change. 
There's a third heart disease, and it's alienation. Alienation means I feel disconnected. I feel disconnected from other people, friends, family. Uh, people feel like I, I just don't fit in anywhere. I don't connect anywhere. And that part, that's part of the cause of sin in our heart and evil in the world. It causes a breach in our relationships. We talked about that in detail last week. And as a result of that alienation in the heart, many people feel friendless. They feel lonely. They don't feel like they, they fit in anywhere. The fourth heart disease is confusion. Confusion in the heart creates a feeling of being aimless in life. Man, does this, sound, does this resonate with anybody? Does this sound like uh, the issues that we're dealing with in our world? The fact is most people live lives of aimless lives of distraction. They just kind of drift through life. They're living for their problems. Uh, the longer you've been a follower of Jesus Christ, you begin to forget how lousy you felt before you became a believer. Uh, you forget how miserable it feels to wake up, go to school, come home, watch TV, do homework, go to bed, wake up, go to work, come home, watch TV, maybe work on a project, go to bed, hopefully do something fun on the weekend, hopefully take a vacation. And there's just a sense of just existing, of just aimless existing. And it's not a new problem. It's not a 21st century problem. Jesus looked out over the crowds and his heart broke for them. Why? Scripture says because they were confused and aimless like sheep without a shepherd. One more, one more universal problem is worry. People worry in every single culture. And when you worry, what is the symptom? You're restless. When people worry, they feel restless, disengaged, anxious. Now you look at these hard issues, you look how the world has attempted to solve these problems. <laughs> I've given you enough to be worried about right now, right? <laughs> like, well, good grief. But the good news is, the good news is, Jesus specializes in heart transformation. The Bible says, I will give you a new heart. Put a new spirit in you. I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And that's what we're looking at today. That's the solution. How Jesus changes hearts. How does he replace a heart filled with guilt and uh, compulsion, alienation, confusion, and worry with a new heart? You know, it's fascinating. As you read through the life of Jesus in the gospel accounts, his followers continually thought Jesus was going to save them through a different approach than what he, than what he ended up doing. Uh, I mean, he was teaching. Uh, they thought for a season salvation was going to come through his teaching. Uh, he would talk about money. He would talk about uh, power and politics and prejudice and sociological issues. He would do miracles, healings, things people had never seen before, healing the human body, touching lives. People thought the solution was going to come through one of those ways. But if worthlessness, helplessness, loneliness, aimlessness, and restlessness could be solved one of these ways, don't you think the Son of God would have tried one of those ways? 
the guy who would actually be powerful enough to make a real difference, if he could make, a, wouldn't he try politics if that was really a solve? Wouldn't he try education if that was really a solve? No, what does the Son of God do? He sacrificed. He went to the cross. And now, if I were to ask you to tell me, what do you think the most common, most universal, most ubiquitous, meaning present and appearing, most ubiquitous symbol in the world is, what would you say? Now, I'm asking Christians this morning, so you maybe have a good answer, but if you look this up or you ask uh, just the average person, uh, some might say the McDonald's arches, uh, some might say the Starbucks logo, I remember when my wife and I visited Washington, D.C., uh, we were standing on a corner at one point outside of Starbucks. Across the street on that corner was a Starbucks. Across the street on that corner was a Starbucks. And caddy corner to us on the second floor of a building was another Starbucks. There were over 300 Starbucks just within the Washington, D.C. diamond at the time we, we were there. Uh, you might say, no, it's the, the Coca-Cola logo or the Nike swoosh, 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 uh, or the Chinese flag or the Indian flag or the American flag. Maybe it's a stop sign. People around the world know that symbol pretty well. But the most ubiquitous symbol on the planet is the Christian cross. In fact, even in Washington, D.C., it's on tons of buildings we visited Arlington Cemetery. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of crosses. God bless them. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's on millions of tombstones and cemeteries and buildings and people wear it, people tattoo it, people put it on their clothes. What is the big deal about the cross? What did it accomplish? Why do Christians use it as a symbol of hope to the solution of the world's problems? Because what Jesus did on the cross has the potential to solve your biggest problems. It's the solution to the root behind every other problem on the planet. So today we're going to quickly look at five benefits of what Jesus did on the cross. There are five words, and you may learn some new terms, some new words today. But there are five reasons that explain what those terms are. Here's the first incredible benefit of what Jesus did on the cross. And that is number one, replacement. If you're taking notes, what does that mean? It means he took my punishment. God says the punish, punishment, the wages of sin, is death. Meaning, because of the fallout of all that we talked about last week, the result is death. And God's not going to let it go on forever. That means I, I deserve to die. And everyone does. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the mortality rate in the world is 100%. Everybody pays this wage. And either I continue to pay for my sin through eternal death, or someone else pays the price for me, and I receive eternal life. On the cross, Jesus Christ took the punishment I deserve to have. He was my replacement. He was my substitute. He changed places with us. He said, I'll do it. I'll be your replacement. And the good news is somebody has already paid the death penalty for your sins. Your sin has been paid for. 
Romans 3, 25 through 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What does this all mean? It means before, before the cross, they'd have to sacrifice to atone for sin, to try and make it right. God presented Jesus to do that. How do you make this apply to you? It's through faith. This shows that when, when God held back unpunished sin before, that he knew what he was doing. He was looking ahead to the cross. And he demonstrated his righteousness. He justifies us. He makes us righteous when we believe in Jesus. He says, I came to take away the first heart problem called guilt. And he says, only I can get rid of it because only I can stand against temptation from the enemy. Only I can live a perfect life and only I could be a perfect sacrifice to pay for your sin. That's why God in the flesh had to be a replacement. No other person could do it. No other prophet, no other holy man could make it happen. God himself had to come, perfection to do it. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he meant I have paid for every sin. Why would God do that for you? For God so loved the world, he did it because he loves you. He made you, he loves you, he wants you to have a relationship with him. Nobody will ever love you more than Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why that's good news. Most of the people in the world are dying, dying to hear three words. You are forgiven. When you accept what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross, you say, I am accepting you as my replacement, my substitute. I'm putting my faith in you. Jesus says you are forgiven. This is the driving force. You look through other religions, you look at extreme things people are, are doing. What are they doing? They're trying to seek out some way of forgiveness and being made right with God somehow. They don't know about the cross. Guilt and resentment have such a psychological effects on our bodies. And you weren't made to walk around carrying guilt. God says, I don't intend for you to live that way. I want you to be forgiven. How does Jesus forgive you? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. That's why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the sweetest amen I've ever heard in my life from one of you. God bless you. This is so good. Friend, your guilt is forgiven. How different would the world be if people really knew and believed that they were forgiven? The second benefit of Jesus' death on the cross is called redemption. That means he, he bought my freedom. 1 Timothy 2.6 says he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Now you might be thinking, well, what do I need redemption from? What do I need uh, freedom from? That's a, a great question. Uh, the Bible teaches us that we are actually a, a slave to whatever controls us. Based on that definition, uh, we're all a slave to something. You could be a slave to 
a, a pattern, a family pattern. You could be a slave to a, a peers. You might be a slave to your past. You might be a slave to memories or guilt or resentment. Uh, you fill in the blank of what you might be a slave to. Are you a slave to your desires? Are you a slave to your lust? Are you a slave to your cravings? Are you a slave to what your eyes see? But what Jesus did on the cross was set us free. Galatians 5.1 It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What is freedom for? His freedom is to be used for good. The Greek word for redemption here uh, is actually referring to uh, slaves that were purchased in a marketplace. And in a spiritual sense, we are all slaves to sin until Jesus purchased us out and made us free from sin's bondage. Let me give you a picture of what Jesus' death on the cross did to purchase our freedom. Imagine with me a busy marketplace and there's a lot of uh, commerce going on and people are selling things, clothes and vegetables and produce and it's massive. But in the center of this marketplace, there is something else that is being sold. It's people who are being sold as slaves. And to really picture this, you've got to put yourself on the auction block. You have been put on the slave block being sold. And prospective buyers are eyeing you, looking you up and down, thinking of you as a thing, not as a person. And the bids begin to start. And with each successive bid, as it's shouted out, you're looking at uh, the bidders in the eye, wondering, how are they going to treat me? Are they kind? Are they cruel? It really doesn't matter, though, but you're being sold for their purpose. Just as the auction is winding down, a stranger in the crowd stands up and he offers a bid that is thousands of times higher than anyone else's bid. There is no way that anyone could reach that bid. There's no way that everyone could pool their money together and match that bid. And as you look into that stranger's eyes, you realize that he's not buying you to use you. He's purchasing you to set you free. He's buying your freedom. That's what Jesus did on the cross for us. He paid the price that was so high to set us free. A free gift that you could not buy on your own. You could not purchase on your own. The cross is redemption. He redeems me by paying uh, so I can be free. There's a third incredible gift, incredible benefit of Jesus' death, and it's called reconciliation. He restored my relationship with God. Reconciliation is a key word. Uh, it means when you bring two parties together who have been distanced by conflict. And there can be reconciliation, obviously, through nations and parties and between governments, between people. It's when uh, people that, who have been apart from one another are brought back together. Uh, it's, it's like this. You know, whenever I do anything that offends my wife, there is a break in our relationship. Isn't it amazing how uh, you can live in the same house with someone and feel distant from somebody? What needs, to be, what needs to take place? Well, because there has been hurt on one or both sides, there needs to be reconciliation to bring the two back together, to span the distance. The truth is, most people in the world feel distant from God. They're living in His world. They sense He's there. 
They see his evidence all around. They sense his presence. But they don't feel God is close or that God cares. The Bible says our sin separates us from God that way. But here's the good news. God doesn't wait for you to take the initiative. God didn't wait for you to do something that you didn't even know how to do. Sometimes when a relationship is broken, both people are waiting for the other one to take the initiative. Look at what God does. Romans 5, 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. In the Old Testament, before Christ, before the cross, the only way you had access to God was through uh, someone who could span the gap, through a priest. In fact, only the Jewish priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies and he had to represent all of the people before God because we were imperfect and God was perfect. He's the only one who was allowed in on the Day of Atonement into this inner sanctum. and He was going to make atonement for the sins of everyone. Jesus said, I've taken that idea out of the way. Now you have direct access. Jesus is now the mediator. Jesus became the mediator. Mediators are people who bring two people together. Maybe you've been in mediation with someone else over something. The Bible tells us that God is on one side, people are on the other side, and Christ Jesus himself is between them, bringing them together. He is the mediator. And through Jesus Christ, I have direct access to God. That means uh, you don't have to go through anyone else. You don't go through a priest. You don't go through a saint. You don't have to uh, pray to any other person. You can talk directly to God. You don't have to come confess to me as a pastor or anyone else. The Bible says Jesus is our priest. He is the mediator. That's why you've heard people say when they pray, in Jesus' name. What does that mean? It means I'm coming directly to God because God has come to me through Jesus. I'm going through him. I'm elevating the name of Jesus. I'm not praying in the name of any other person, any other God, any other thing. God, I'm coming to you. Because of the cross, there is reconciliation between God and man. The fourth benefit of Jesus' death on the cross is this wonderful word, rebirth. And it means that he has given, he gave me a new life. Are there some things in your past about your past that you would love to forget? I know there are some things about my past I'd love to forget. Why, why is our world so preoccupied with this identity thing? The discovery of it, the changing of it, the escaping from it? At its core level, it's a spiritual issue. 
Our, our world offers superficial changes. But when you ask Jesus into your life, it's a new birth, a new beginning. Something has taken place on the soul level, at the core level. Titus 3, 4 through 6. Let's read this one out loud together. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The moment you believe in Christ, there's a spiritual transaction that takes place that changes everything. And this is a matter of faith, not by sight. Like when you become a believer, you don't all of a sudden look different in the mirror. Sorry to break it to you, that's not happening. It's not like you get a new car, a new house, new job. A lot of that stays the same. Even uh, your personality may very much stay the same. But if, let me ask this, can a butterfly go back into a cocoon after it's come out from being a caterpillar? No, there is a metamorphosis that takes place. When you become a believer, there is a spiritual metamorphosis that takes place. And once you become that thing, there's no going back. And it may take you time to fly spiritually, but once you become a new creation in Christ, that is what you are. We're not talking here about positive thinking, because positive thinking would be uh, a caterpillar deciding to glue on wings trying to fly. That's not going to happen. No, God truly gave us a new nature when we became a Christian. Friend, reminding yourself of who you are in Christ is not positive thinking, it's truthful thinking. The greatest step of faith we can take in our life is when we accept Jesus in our life and believe Jesus, believe what God said about who Jesus is. I believe the second greatest step you can take is when you start believing what God says about who you are. You are a new creation in Christ. That's why one of the symbols uh, that helps us remember this, helps us identify with it, with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and becoming a new creation, is baptism. Romans 6, 3-4 says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And when you become a Christian, you have a new life in him. Baptism is an outward symbol of that inward change. And if you've never been baptized before, I encourage you to sign up to be baptized just a few weeks from now, uh, in September, third Sunday of the month, uh, to be baptized here at Rockbrook. And number five, let me give you the, the fifth word, the fifth thing that the cross means for us, and it's repudiation. What does that mean? It means he defeated the devil and death. Uh, the reason, the Bible says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What's the devil's work? Well, it's the things that are messing up your heart, filling it with worry, filling it with guilt, resentment, anger, rage, confusion, helping you feel worthless, helpless, hopeless, aimless. The enemy wants to fill your heart with fear. Where do you think that comes from? It's not from God. It's from the enemy. It's from Satan. And the number one, peop number one fear that people have 
is a fear of death. And Satan uses it all the time to keep us enslaved. But I have seen the difference it makes when somebody knows the Lord. You know, as a pastor, um, I frequent funerals. I've spent a lot of time at funerals. And I have seen the difference from those who believe and those who do not believe. The Christians and the non-Christians. And the fact is that Christians grieve. We have mixed emotions. But we don't grieve for the person who died. We're grieving for ourselves. We grieve with hope. We grieve because we're going to miss them. We grieve because life is heavy. Life is hard. But we certainly don't grieve for the people who die and know the Lord because they're going to a better place anyway. They're going to where we're designed to be in the first place. And honestly, the more people I know that get there, the more I long for it. I'm tired of the problems of earth. I'm ready for heaven. And we weren't meant to be here forever. The Bible says this is how he, he gets us there. This is how Jesus solved the fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, Jesus also became flesh and blood by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he deliver those who have lived all their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Don't go all through life totally unprepared for something that you know is inevitable. And thank God Jesus neutralized Satan's only tool, the fear of death. Because Easter was a complete surprise to the enemy. And anytime you're afraid, anytime you're afraid of something, run to God. Here's the point. When you understand these five things that Jesus did, instead of feeling worthless and hopeless and helpless and powerless and aimless in life, this is what the cross says about you. The cross says, no, you are valuable. You are lovable. You are forgivable. You are capable. You are usable for the purpose of God. Friends, this is the greatest news in the whole world. You will not find this news anywhere else except in the word of God. Jesus took my punishment, replacement. Jesus bought my freedom, redemption. Jesus restores my relationship to God, reconciliation. Jesus wiped out all the things that I've done wrong, rebirth. Jesus defeated the devil and death, repudiation. It's all about Jesus. The solution is Jesus. The hope is Jesus' return. The promise is Jesus' return. It is all about Jesus. Jesus is the way, the life, the truth. What is the truth? It is Jesus Christ. Uh, Before we close this this series, I I just had to give you, so what do I do? If I've discovered the truth, if I've discovered Jesus, what do I do with it? And let me just give you four quick things, and you can study these later today if you want. But what do we do with the truth that we've been given? Number one, we believe it. Friend, believe it. Stand firm in it. Don't give up believing the truth. Number two, do it. Truth is not just an intellectual exercise. It's something you do. You practice it. You apply it. 
You live it. You obey it. I mean, we look at the truths we live today, or we looked at today. How can I live those? Jesus sacrificed for me. I can make sacrifices for other people. Jesus freed me. Uh, that means I'm not to put heavy burdens on other people. Uh, Jesus took the initiative to restore a relationship with me. Whenever, whenever I take the initiative to restore a relationship, whenever you take the initiative to restore a relationship, you're being like Christ. That God has given opportunity for rebirth. We are to be baptized or to be reminded of our new creation every time we see that symbol. We are to not give in to the, the fears of the enemy, but to live free in Christ and the hope and the power that he gives us. We believe it, we do it. Number three, we stand for it. Stand for it. Don't be ashamed in a postmodern world that says truth doesn't matter to stand for truth. And people are willing to stand for everything else. All these approaches, people stand for these all the time. Will you make a stand for truth? Make a stand for Christ? And number four, spread it. Spread the truth. Christ returns when uh, the word has been spread to every tribe, nation, and tongue. Tell others the truth. Invite others to church with you. Invite them to foundations with you. Speak the truth to them. Believe it. Do it. Stand for it. Spread it. I thank you for your time today. Would you pray with me, please? Well, dear God, um, so much of the world feels so distant from you. God, we're, we're living in your world and at, at times it feels uh, like you're so far. But God, I, I want to be close to you. I want to know you. Maybe you want to pray this in your heart and mind with me today, church. God, thank you for loving me enough to send Jesus to solve my biggest problems, my separation from you, my sin, and my fallen heart. God, it is amazing to me that you would love me. I don't understand it all, but as much as I know how, I ask you to come into my life to replace my heart of stone with a heart of flesh. God, take away the guilt, the worry, the confusion, the compulsions, the loneliness, and begin to build a new life in me. God, thank you for taking my punishment, for buying my freedom, for making a way for me. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.